From the island in the desert, it's life punctuated at Story Story Night, where you hear true stories on a theme recorded live on stage and without notes from Boise, Idaho. I'm your host, Jody Eichelberger. On this podcast, our featured storytellers exclaim themselves during our season inspired by punctuation marks. Held on February 27th, we joined our three independent storytellers together with the semicolon, featuring Liza Long, Gary Tackett, and Emma Arnold. Now for stories with a real point, it's story time. Please welcome Liza Long. So I'm a college English instructor, and I'm also a mental health advocate. I think I know a thing or two, or maybe six, about semicolons, and I'm here to share my vast wisdom and experience with you tonight. Um, First of all, as an English instructor, I can tell you that the semicolon does in fact belong to the group of punctuation marks known as pauses. It's stronger than a comma, and commas are so overworked anyway, right? Most of us should go on a comma diet. Some of my students should go on a comma diet for sure. And it's a little more mysterious than the very business-like colon. So for me, the semicolon is like a super comma. That's what I tell my students. It's a super comma, the only pause punctuation mark that is strong enough to join two complete thoughts without a coordinating conjunction. Pretty cool. It's almost magic. (laughs) When I write, I see the semicolon as a threshold like a doorway from one idea into the next. Now, as a mental health advocate, the semicolon also has very special meaning to me. You may be wondering, what is a mental health advocate? I'm still wondering, I don't know what a mental health advocate is. All I know is that five years ago, I was parenting a child with an undiagnosed mental illness, and I shared my family's story about unpredictable rages, violence, but also what just an amazing kid this young man was and how frustrating it was as a parent to see my child suffer and not be able to get help for him. I wrote the story, sent it into the internet. It was picked up under the title, I am Adam Lanza's mother. And you know what? Because everything lives forever on the internet, it is currently in present tense circulating around the internet again. I don't know who's responsible for that, but you can see it five years later, right? So. Um, That is how I became a mental health advocate, whatever it means. But what it means to me is that I stand up and speak out to support people who live with mental illness and their families. Because I know in my own family's case, it's made a difference. And in a lot of other families' cases, it's made a difference. So five years ago, I became part of this amazing community of mental health warriors, people out there fighting for change, fighting to make a difference. And in that circle was a rather remarkable woman named Amy Bluell. I did not get to know Amy personally, but she is in fact the founder of Project Semicolon that Jody told you about. And Amy lived with mental illness, sadly died because of mental illness, but her inspiration and her ideas that your story is not over That resonates with so many people, and it's inspired so many people like Isaiah and so many others to go on and to try to make a difference in the world and to live their best lives. So while I didn't know Amy personally, I took her her death, the news of her death, pretty hard, and I was talking with a friend who did know Amy, knew Amy well, Martin Rafferty over at Youth Move Oregon, and um, Martin was devastated, I was devastated. 
that day we were texting and I had been an advocate for a while, but no one had ever asked me, do you have a semicolon moment? And Martin asked me that night, the night that Amy, the founder of Project Semicolon passed away, he said, do you have a semicolon story? And I said, I do. And I don't know that I'd really thought about it until that moment. I think for five years I've been telling myself that my story was the mom, the brave warrior in there fighting for my kid. But you know what? That's not my story. It's not the semicolon story I'm going to tell you tonight. My story goes back almost exactly 10 years ago. And I want to take you there. I want you to see a woman sitting in a downstairs spare bedroom in one of those Eagle McMansions where all the Californians live. Okay, I'll admit it, I'm a recovering Californian. Don't hold it against me. <laughs> so I'm sitting there, I'm that woman, and I am about to lose everything that matters to me in my life. I'm about to lose my husband. I'm about to lose all of my friends. I'm going to lose my entire life and community and identity. And at the time, I think I'm going to lose my children. I'm sitting in this downstairs bedroom where my soon-to-be ex-husband had deposited me and my stuff because, hey, I didn't pay the mortgage, so where else did I deserve to be? And the reason I'd been banished to, to the downstairs bedroom was the greatest loss of all for me. I'd lost my faith. That's where I have to tell you I was raised in the LDS church, but I wasn't just raised in the LDS church. I was like the Book of Mormon girl, right? I was that girl who at the age of eight would go into a bar and tell you, Joseph Smith says that drinking alcohol is bad, so you should stop. Anyone here? No. <laughs> I was that girl who went to BYU and I loved the Bible so much that I learned ancient Greek because I thought there were a lot of jobs in ancient Greek, but well, not really. But no, because I, I love the Bible and I love the word of God and I wanted to know it in its original language. That had been my entire identity, my love of Mormonism, of my faith. But over a few years, the course of a few years, I'd realized something very painful. And I know not everyone has the same realization, but for me, it was not working out for me and the Mormon God. We were, we were gonna have to break up. It took me a long time, long time, to have the courage to say those words. And when I did, I ended up in the spare bedroom, about to lose it all. So that night, I'm sitting in that room, and I felt worthless. I was a burden to my husband. I was a burden to my friends. I was a burden. I'd let down my community. Worst of all, my kids, they'd be better off without me. I have never felt so gray and numb, but at the same time filled with agony as I felt in that moment. I don't think I wanted to die but I didn't want to be a burden to everyone anymore. I wanted everyone else to just be happy and they'd be so much happier if I weren't there. And so I got online. I think this was MySpace days, right? 2008, anyone? No, so I got online <laughs> and I, uh, no one even remembers MySpace, jeez. <laughs> it's all Facebook, Snapchat, whatever, whatever the kids are doing. I got online and I, and I typed in a, a question that to this day still hurts my heart. I typed in, 
how can I die? And as you might imagine, the internet had a few ideas. Probably still does. And as I was scrolling, scrolling through the screen, I heard a voice from the doorway. Mommy. And I turned around, and my little four-year-old son was standing there. This is not the same one who had mental illness, but his younger brother standing there in the doorway in his little Thomas the Tank Engine pajamas, and his hair was all tousled, and his face looked worried, and he said, Mommy, I had a bad dream. I need you. And at that moment, as my little boy rushed into my arms and I embraced him and held him and felt his heart beating and felt my heart beating, the Greek poet Sophocles reached out across the millennia from all those classics courses and a line from his last play, The Phaedra, came into my mind. And the line is this, children are the anchors that hold a mother to life. Children my anchor. And that's my semicolon moment, when instead of stopping, I crossed the threshold. I went through the doorway, and I can't lie and say that all those bad things didn't happen, because they did. It did lose everything. But you know what? I have new friends, right? <laughs> Just like new friends, a few of them here. <laughs> it wasn't easy. I was diagnosed with depression. I was so fortunate, I now know as an advocate, that the first medication I took, Zoloft, worked great. The gray lifted. I found my way. I found my purpose. I found my strength. But most importantly, I became an advocate then because I learned compassion, not just for others, but for myself. In that moment, I found the strength that I would later need for my son. I found the strength that I would need for other parents who reached out to me with their heartbreaking stories so that I could understand that these stories matter and that these stories are not over. And so now, every day, I give thanks for the anchors that hold me to life. And every night, I end my day with a semicolon. Thank you. Mr. Gary Tackett. Oh, boy. Well, this is the first time I've told uh, these stories to an audience. It's usually been backstage after a show or a concert, after imbibing and playing in front of a lot of people. Anyway, uh, about 23 years ago, um, I was at what I thought was the, uh, the, the peak of everything in my life going, going right. Um, a band I was in had just won the National Marlboro Contest, which is the local big thing to do in a country band. And, uh, but we won the Nationals. So we were going to Nashville, and and uh, we won our got the big check, and and I had just recorded um, 
played guitar on Merle Haggard's Blue Jungle record. So everything I dreamed about and thought about, it was happening right in front of me. We're going to Nashville, we're doing all this stuff. Uh, and my new wife, I was about to have a, a, a new baby girl. Um, things were going good. New house, my new shiny Beamer. I had all that stuff and I was getting stuff. And um, so to celebrate all of these things going on, um, um, my wife and I got in our car and we're driving up past through Sacramento on the way to Reno. I'm gonna spend the weekend up there in Tahoe. And, um, and I felt this tingling and pain in my right arm like a bursitis, like I'd been throwing a baseball too long and, um, or maybe playing too hard or something. And uh, the pain kept getting worse and worse and worse. Um, by the time we got up through Grass Valley, um, my right, right arm, I couldn't feel it anymore. It was just kind of like, um, we've got to pull over, we got to do something. So uh, we pulled into the emergency room, um, just, uh, I guess, just this side of Grass Valley in Sacramento. And uh, I went in and said, hey, I, I think I need a shot in my shoulder. I got, you know, bursitis or something going on. And um, doctor comes out, they do an x-ray and um, he comes out and he goes, you know, put him down, put him on the gurney, take him in. And I'm just like going, what's, what's going on? What's going on? And come to find out through a couple more x-rays and an MRI that I had a um, a four inch long blood clot the size of my little finger right here and in a subclavian thrombosis they called it for all of us uh, educated in the medical field um, and it's in the thoracic outlet which is very narrow underneath the clavicle um, and I tell Jody I'm a licensed mortician and funeral director by trade also uh, that's another story but, so anyway, <laughs> I played with Merle. I just played the Oakland Coliseum with George Strait in Alabama. And I got my Beamer, I got my beautiful wife. We're about to have a baby, going to Reno. Doctor says, you have a blood clot <clears throat> in your arm. And we're going to admit you in the hospital, start young blood thinners, et cetera, et cetera. I go, oh, okay, okay, that's cool. So this will be cool. This will be over quick. Um, about eight days later, um, the uh, doctors came in and one of them was a real, uh, real ass. <laughs> and he didn't know who I thought I was at the time. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if you know who, I, who I'm gonna be. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, and the doc just come in and goes, well, maybe you can play the flute. Now, it takes two hands to play a flute, I think. So, I just, he was just, anyway, I was really mad and angry. Anyway, eight days later, they put a, a, per, a, put a curtain and, and I started feeling the pressure. And what happens is when you got a blood clot like that, I guess the blood flows out, but it doesn't come back. So it's just engorging my right arm with blood and fluid. And, um, and at that time, it's turning gangrenous and as black as my jacket and the size of my leg. So my skin is splitting and they put a curtain up here so I couldn't see it. And at this point, I'm um, uh, 
my thoughts are when the doctor says, comes in, in 72 hours, we're going to have to take your clavicle, remove it, your top two ribs, it's going to be a little deformed, and your right arm. We're going we're to have to amputate it. Um, at that point, I laughed. and It just kind of like, this is a joke. And we always brought up, I believe in miracles. So it was kind of like, this too shall pass. No, no, and they wouldn't let me see my arm. And anyway, um, at that point, I said, I'm not going to be able to uh, hold my baby girl. I'm not going to ever be able to play guitar. I'm not going to, um, I'm, I'm going to be deformed. And they showed me pictures of guys with their top ribs and the clavicle. And it was just like, and I was, uh, it was devastating. At that point, um, I said, I don't want to be here anymore. There's no point. That's what everybody, that's what I'm known for is playing guitar. I didn't, I didn't really think this is about me, myself and I, and I'm, I'm going like, um, but you know, I want to be, be a famous guitar player and, and, uh, I don't want to hold my baby and, and I, I need it. I need it. And I was, um, they fit me with a prosthetic and said, do you want a hand or a hook? <laughs> I said, really? I'm not going to be here long enough for you to do both because I'm going to figure out a way to exit. <clears throat> then, um, then I got angry, pause, semicolon, and I got really ticked off at whoever, whatever was putting me at a spot uh, for this to happen right then. And I stopped and I said, this isn't going to happen. It, it, it can't happen. Um, you didn't put me here for this, for this to happen. Um, I still, uh, I still have a lot of <laughs> miles left to go, and a lot of playing, and 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 a lot of stuff to do. Anyway, um, I was about 48 hours before the surgery took place, and I hadn't felt my hand in about eight, eight, ten days. Um, after this bout of, of of praying and begging and. And you know, it, it just please let me have my arm. Let me keep my arm. If if you do this, if you do this, you know, I will I will I will glorify you and and my family. And I will go back into the reason I was put here and channeling this stuff. I don't. I never took guitar lessons. I never did any of that stuff. Um, but I went on to live every dream um, I ever had to play the Grand Ole Opry and with Merle Haggard and. Billy Current, I lived in Nashville 15 years. And they say, if you go into Nashville and you can play guitar better than the guy pumping your gas, go ahead on in. Just because, anyway. Uh, about 10, 11 days in this thing, I, I feel my middle finger out of, out of uh, and I told the doctors, I said, I feel my finger, I feel my hand. They said, it's impossible. They showed me the x-rays we're gonna proceed with the procedure. And I said, no, you're not. You need to go back in and have another MRI done and uh, with a contrast dye. And, and, and sure enough, that blood had recanalized, <clears throat> recanalized, it went around the blood clot, four inches long, the size of my little finger, and rerouted around that clot. And the doctors said, that's impossible. Sometimes it, uh, We've never seen it, so um, 
So that's why every time, every time I play, every time I play a note, um, uh, picking up my kids, um, grabbing a cup of coffee, I'm like, oh man, thank you, right arm. It's like, or a Bud Light, or you're, it's like, it's like, um, so it just those moments, I, I've had quite a few, actually. I've told Jody about, there's been a lot of semicolon moments in my life. That was, that was the, one of the first devastating ones. I've had many in between. But those semicolons, I, I think they, um, they have to happen sometimes to some people to just get it, you know, just, um, just to wake up and go, um, I put you here, I, you know, I can take you out. <laughs> it's like as simple as that. I put you here, I can take you out. Um, that's how I took it anyways. And, uh, but I, I'm just thankful to be here and to do this. Parade wave and, uh, and play guitar. That's, that's all I got. That's, I, got uh, I want to do a song for you. This is um, a song I wrote that um, lead singer for Santana, Tony Lindsay, a good friend of mine. Um, sang. I just write them. I don't, I don't sing them. So. Um. If I said to you, you're all I'd ever need, would you drop everything and run away with me? And if I looked at you like I'd never see again, would it prove to you my love will never end? We can love a little longer than we used to. We'll sleep in a little longer than we need to. You'll see all my days and nights beginning with you. And only one thing in this life will ever do And that's you If you came to me And your heart was filled with doubt Would there be something I could do To help us work it out Cause the way I feel for you Leaves no questions in my mind They couldn't go unanswered If we just take the time To love a little longer Than we used to We'll sleep in a little longer Than we need to You'll see all my days and nights Beginning with you only one thing in life will ever do, and that's you. And after years have come and gone, the fires of love will still burn strong. We can love a little longer than we used to. 
We'll sleep in a little longer than we need to. tell people that I'm not suicidal. I'm suicide-ish. <laughs> Suicide adjacent. <laughs> like, I've, I've, I dabble. <laughs> I've, like, stuck my toe into the water a couple times, but I've never taken the full plunge, you know? Um, and that's because for most of my life, I could not wait to be dead because being a person I don't know if you've had this experience, but it is exhausting. <laughs> it is so difficult. You have to do all of this every day and have car insurance. It's <laughs> impossible. And it's especially impossible if you have mental illness. It's, uh, it's an extra layer to that. Uh, I'm a comedian by profession. That's what I do for my job. And uh, this summer, in June, I was lucky enough to film my first comedy special, and I could have, oh, thank you, thank you, oh, <laughs> thank you guys. <laughs> um, I could have done it anywhere, but I decided to do it here in Boise at Visual Arts Collective, because that's where I got my start. Uh, I started with Story Story Late Night, that was the first time I was on stage, was with Story Story Night, and so it was kind of a special thing to me. And there was a lot of pressure around it, it ha uh, was produced by two of my comedy heroes, and I had one night, a lot of people put time and money and energy and love into it, and I had one night to get it exactly perfect, and I nailed it. I did really well. Uh, I felt really good about it. Thank you. A couple people were there and are agreeing with me, so I'm not just being a jerk. Uh, I did. I felt really good. Afterward, um, I was like, I hit every joke. It was fun and casual. Um, I took my bra pads out and threw them into the audience at one point, which was a classy move, I felt like. Uh, unplanned, and later I was like, oh man, dang it. Um, but I felt really good about it, and afterward I was relieved, and I just was like, there, you didn't let anybody down. And a week later, I was in North Carolina for work. I did six shows at a club over the course of the weekend, and uh, at, on Sunday night, I said thank you and goodbye to the staff there, and I went back to my crappy hotel room, and I wrote a note to the maid, in both Spanish and English that said, suicide, do not open bathroom door, sorry for the inconvenience. <laughs> uh, and I put $40, I put the note on the floor and I put $40 on top of it. Uh, just a side note, I had 60 in my, in my purse. Uh, <laughs> I don't know exactly what that says about me. Just, I guess, cheap till the end. Uh, put the, so I put the $40 on the note, 
and I put it in front of uh, the bathroom and I went in and I shut the door and I got into the bathtub and in the morning I got dressed, packed my stuff and went home because I wanted to die but I couldn't kill myself and that was partly because my stepkids had lost their mom to suicide about six years prior and I was not going to be the monster that doubled down on that tragedy so I couldn't go ahead and kill myself and not to mention my own children to whom I had been the sole parent of until recently and my partner at the time who had been incredibly loving and supportive who had already lost someone to suicide and uh, who didn't know that I was in so much pain. I am not typically someone uh, people associate with mental illness. I, from the outside, for most of my life, I looked like I really had my shit together. And that is because I'm Swedish. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, I'm Swedish. So uh, when I did finally fall apart, it means I did it very politely, very quietly, and very efficiently. <laughs> I come from a very long line of minimizers and deniers. Uh, my family, when I was just, I was at a family reunion a few years ago, and this cousin of mine was saying that uh, we had lost this or that relative to the lake. As in, oh, you know, your great uncle Ruben, so sad, we did lose him to the lake. And I was like, wow, so many drownings in one family. Like, what a tragedy, like all these people drowning. Until that night at the big party when I realized, lose him to the lake, that's how my family refers to alcoholism. So, yeah. So we do not talk about anything, even things that the rest of the country are talking about. So um, what I was taught, this is what I was taught, is if anything happens to you or you have a feeling, you take that and you stuff it down into your pain hole as tight as it'll go, and then you put the lid on that, and you twist it down as tight as you can get it, tight, 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 and then you take the pressure that inevitably builds up around that to power a tireless work ethic <laughs> and to make other people feel guilty for taking naps. That's what that's <laughs> for. It's a very IKEA approach to mental health, I think. I'm not sure. Don't talk about anything. It's always been the rule. When I was 10, my parents broke this rule and they put me in therapy because I was having some pretty major anger issues and I hated it. And for the first three months, I didn't speak to or even make eye contact with the therapist at all. I would just sit in there in silence. And after about six months, she was able to sort of slowly break me down to the point where I finally was able to like talk to her about school or my friends a little bit. And about nine months in, one day, while we were playing with Clay, she said to me very casually, very gently, has anyone ever touched you in a way that made you feel bad? And I remember that moment so distinctly because everything that I was, everything that made me a person just sucked down into the hole until there was nothing left except for this little automaton playing with Clay completely impassively no reaction, and I didn't say a word for the rest of the session. And when I got out, I told my mom that I was never going back, that the therapist was weird and had a bad haircut, 
which was true. And <laughs> my mom, I think, was a little relieved that we were done with this feelings phase. And she never made me go back. But that question continued to ping pong around in my head for the next few weeks. And that was because someone had touched me in a way that made me feel bad. In fact, my father had been sexually, abu sexually abusing me for most of my life. And I won't go into any details, but torture is not too strong of a word for what he did to me. He sucked, uh, <laughs> I think someone put it. And um, I had been keeping the things he had been doing a secret since before I could talk. So that question just rattled around and rattled around until I couldn't take it anymore. And I finally went to my mother and my stepfather, who had raised me, and I said, I just sort of took this like little paper boat and floated it toward them in this like very shallow trough of vulnerability we had between us. And I said, what if, hypothetically, <laughs> maybe, possibly, it's not inconceivable that I was maybe possibly slightly, or maybe more than slightly, molested. And my mother said, you were not. You absolutely were not. There's simply no way that anyone ever molested you. I watched you like a hawk. And this was true. My mother, for her own childhood reasons, was very overprotective. I wasn't allowed to do sleepovers. I wasn't allowed to hang out with male relatives alone. And she really, she did her best to keep me safe. She was a wonderful mother and a wonderful person. But she had no way of knowing uh, that, as they say, the call was coming from inside the house. So she told me that there was no way I had been molested. And that, of course, was what I wanted to hear. So for the next almost 30 years, I took that ugly truth and I pushed it down into the pain hole as deep as it would go. And I did my best to deal with the self-loathing and shame that constantly swirled around that. And I just kind of carried on. And I mean, not to brag, but um, several mental health professionals have recently told me that I am remarkably functional. Yeah, <laughs> to which I always reply, oh my God, thank you, because what do you say to that? I have car insurance. Um, <laughs> um, and I think I did what a lot of women do with their pain. Um, I funneled it into my kids and into my work, and I just tried to stay busy enough that uh, the pain of what I had endured never had a chance to rattle the top off of that lid. And um, unfortunately, that works, but repressed trauma is like holding a balloon underwater. It takes a lot of effort, and you have to do it all the time, or it will bob up and ruin your life. <sighs> um, Sorry. <laughs> um, I did pretty good with that for a long time, keeping the lid on, uh, until I was sexually assaulted by a male colleague. 
uh, a male comedian. And that was terrible enough in its own right, what happened. But um, it also just brought up a lot of things that I hadn't dealt with. It just sort of brought that balloon all the way to the surface. And um, about a year later, after the assault, uh, I decided to go public with my story because after talking to so many women into my industry, I realized how common my story was that, that so many women comedians had also been assaulted by our colleagues, that they faced an insane amount of sexual harassment and that nobody cared. That when you told people, when you told bookers, when you told um, managers, they were just like, well, it's kind of a job hazard. And so I decided to go public with my story and it went pretty viral. It got picked up by The Guardian and it got shared by some really big name comedians. And um, there was a huge backlash and people told me that I was lying, that I had made it up, that I had exaggerated the story, um, that I was just doing it for attention, that I was doing it to better my career um, at the expense of this man's career. And it was like a nuclear version of what had happened to me as a child, being told that my reality didn't exist. And I snapped, quietly, politely, <laughs> not all at once, but just like I had when I was a child, I started self-harming again, and I relapsed. Um, I, I fell back into an addiction that I have dealt with most of my life. And I, uh, I got lost at the lake, we'll just say, for a bit. Um, and it was, a, it was a very difficult time. I really like this theme. When Jody asked if I would do it, as soon as he explained it, I was, I was happy to do it. Because um, I really like the movement behind semicolon. I find it very inspiring. Um, I think for me, the semicolon represents the space that is necessary to acknowledge, honor, and accept as true the first part of the sentence. And I spent most of my life running from the things that happened to me. But I cannot be myself without the truth of who I am. I need the first part of my story to write the second half. So five months ago, that balloon finally burst and I lost everything. I lost my home and my partner and my family and like my whole life. And I was lucky enough at the time to get to go to treatment. And while I was at treatment, the first day, one of the counselors asked me, have you been suicidal in the last year? And I was like, oh gosh, no, um, not at all. I mean, I've written some notes <laughs> to maids in hotel rooms, but I mean, I mean, I've spent like a year in the bathtub waiting to die, but that's not, <laughs> it's just what you do. And he like stopped and put his pen down and was like, sweetie, I'm just wondering what you think being suicidal looks like. I was like, oh, okay, <laughs> all right. Um, I'm, I'm actually, this is sort of a special night, a special moment, because I'm in my semicolon right now. I'm in the pause. Uh, you're all, we're, all, we're all in my pause right now. Congratulations. <laughs> um, I, um, 
I will never get back the things that my father so effortlessly took from me. I'll always live with having survived the unsurvivable. That will be true for me every day for the rest of my life. But with the help and unconditional love of an astonishing number of people around me, and if you are suicidal, I ask you to pause and look around you because there are so many more people with you than you know. Um, with the help of those people, I am here today and I can finally look back at my past with compassion and honesty. And the story, the sentence rather, the sentence of my life is this. As a child, I was hurt very deeply. Pause. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for listening. Story Story Night is brought to you by our story party. Amy Moran, Karis Kimball, Hannah Mae Schaefer, Karen Moore, Marnie Ellis, and me, Jody Eichelberger. We receive support from the Boise Arts and History Department. Thank you to our media sponsor, Radio Boise, our season sponsor, Pettit Group Real Estate, and the semicolon show sponsor, Pure Bar. Podcast production is by Stephen Baldessare. Our theme song was composed by Dan Costello, and our musical guest was Gary Tackett. Support this storied program, get tickets to our live show, and stay tuned at www.storystorynight.org or on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube at Story Story Night.